0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. This episode of Archaeotech is sponsored by Nomad. Own less, live more. Check them out at HelloNomad.com. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 47. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co host, Chris Sims. On today's show, we talked to Patrick Sieverts about mine lab and metal detecting. Okay, we are back on the Archaeotech podcast, and we have a great guest with us. Uh, I met him at the Society for Historical and Underwater Archaeology in uh, Fort Worth, Texas in January. He was at the, uh, the Mine Lab booth, and we're going to find out all about what Mine Lab is here shortly. Um, but welcome, Patrick Sieverts.
2: Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure meeting you there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Nice to see that metal detecting. We're going to talk about metal detecting today, obviously. That's right. Since I'm uh, with Long it's nice to see that metal detecting is now becoming accepted in the world of archaeology.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Little, little, little bit about myself is I've spent the last 27 years mostly as a field technician. I started with the Museum of New Mexico, the Office of Archaeological Studies in Santa Fe, and then uh, was transferred. With my wife, was transferred to Georgia, which I spent uh, another uh, seventeen years working here in the southeast. And mm-hmm. the last fourteen years of that, I've spent swinging a metal detector on all sorts of, <laughs> mostly battlefields, but a lot of other historic uh, resources as well.
1: Awesome. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your association with uh, Mine Lab, and what and what Mine Lab does.
2: Well, Mine Lab is a manufacturer of uh, probably the best detection units out there, uh, but, and I, I say that wholeheartedly because I've used just about everyone, every every company that's out there. I mean, there's a lot of good detectors out there,
3: mm-hmm. but
2: my lab is the next step. They uh, Most detectors work on a single frequency. These work on 28 different frequencies at the same time, wow. so we can actually go into a site, and, and it automatically adjusts for soils and different conditions, whereas other metal detectors may be eliminated in those certain conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, my lab and uh, Fisher Labs were the only two uh, companies that responded to a call out I put out when Chris Espinche and myself started the Advanced Metal Detecting for Archaeology. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they came to the very first one. It was, it was uh, AMDA was only supposed to be a single uh, single class. Here in Georgia, mm-hmm. sponsored by the DNR and Department of Transportation, and that class became so popular in that first day that the Mine Lab and Fisher Labs both came to me and Chris and said that you guys are onto something. You should probably carry this further. Okay. So Chris and I got the job, got the uh, AMDA certified through RPA. It was our very first continuing education certi- mm. cert- certified class.
1: Nice and.
2: I had the pleasure of working with the AMDA for five five years, mm-hmm. and then my lab said, well, we need somebody that can go in between the archaeology groups and... Metal detecting company. Mm-hmm. They need some kind of uh, go between and between the two groups. Okay. So that's when they asked me as a certified trainer.
1: So Mine Lab was was producing these these sort of next level high end metal detectors before they even really got into archaeology. Then.
2: Yes. Uh, they started uh, Mine Lab. Actually, <laughs> it's an interesting name, uh, Mine Lab. <laughs> they actually started off in the mining industry in the gold fields of Australia, mm-hmm. but they also produced equipment for mine detection for the military
4: well cool okay.
2: but yeah. because, because of those technologies uh and they were very successful in those aspects they they started a uh they call it their relic division which mm-hmm. I, I really do not like they're they're changing they're changing terminology <laughs> that's the good thing about having archaeologists on hand, on staff is they get it through their head that that to sell to an archaeologist, to convince archaeologists to use detection equipment, you have to un- understand where they're coming from. And, and mm-hmm. it's been nice uh, that they've actually listened and have adjusted a lot of their terminology to adjust it for the archaeologists. They were also doing a large push in the last few years to bring the relics community and the archaeologists together. Mm -hmm. James Madison's Mount Pillier program by Matt Reeves, Dr. Matt Reeves has been running that now for four or five years, which pairs archaeologists with enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, by the time they leave that course, they've changed their idea of of what they're doing
1: on their own. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, it's often it's it's good to hear that they're talking about you know terminology and things like that because metal detecting we may as well get this off the ground you know out of the way right away. Yeah, I feel like it's commonly seen by at least archaeologists, um, and this like you said, this attitude is changing. But I feel like it's commonly been seen by archaeologists as you know a tool of. Uh, uh, a, tool, a tool of looters, quite frankly. Um, and, and I think mostly on the East Coast because of Civil War battlefields and stuff like that. But that's like saying, you know, cars are a tool of people that kill people because you can kill someone with a car. So we should not use cars anymore. You know what I mean? It's all about, it's not the equipment. It's yeah. not the methodology. It's the education.
2: Yeah, um, they used to refer to it as the devil stick.
1: Oh, jeez!
2: Always cracked up. And there was great, uh, great cartoon out of England uh, back in the uh, '80s, and it has uh, uh, a depiction of a cartoon devil metal detecting, Mm -hmm. and you know says keep your eye out for the looters. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh
1: man. Which is odd because England has a great relationship with metal detectorists, don't they? Now anyway?
2: Well yeah, you know, it's kinda of funny. They have all those rules and regulations and it's a great idea for them and it works because they have so much history and right. and um and they have actual treasure. Uh mm. so you know, that the crown still you know, anything below ground actually belongs to the Crown, you know. Right. Uh so They can lay claims on that stuff here in the states. We're completely different. We have uh, privately owned land, so it makes it a little more difficult to run a program like that. Mm -hmm. But you you talk to the archaeologists in England and the UK; they 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 don't do metal detecting themselves. They always find a group to come and do it for them. So. They think it's funny that a bunch of archaeologists here in uh, North America are, are uh, actually running around with metal
4: detectors. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. So with that, with uh, like in the UK, with you know metal detectorists running around, I'm, I'm sure you've encountered the metal detectorist community here in the States as well, but I've spoken to a few archaeologists in the UK that have said that metal detectorists have such a skilled working knowledge with you know, metal detector abilities and techniques and stuff like that, that they're able to go through a site that might contain metal cultural material. And they can tell the difference between gold, bullets, and various other, you know, hardware, whatever else might show up. And it's, you know, a finer grained, it's a its a finer grained way of, of using it than I think most archaeologists would be able to do, especially just like, picking it up and and just starting it right off the bat. Is that something that you've encountered here in the States as well?
2: Well, you know, that's true to a point. And there's been a lot of studies done by uh, archaeologists, Uh, one including uh, Dr. Doug Scott, who's actually looked at this, and he's dealt with, you know, hundreds of volunteers over his time. And i got to tell you, they all come in different shades. I mean, they could be beginners. They could come out with a... $49 $49 harbor freight metal detector and and, and not find a thing uh, but claim that they have hundreds of hours of detection
3: mm-hmm. reality is
2: the reason we started instructing archaeologists because it's a tool that. I mean you think about all the other tools that we use it's another piece of technology and we're getting to the age where the younger groups are coming up they're very comfortable with this technology and they can learn it at a rapid pace. It isn't rocket science and, and yeah, within a matter of days, I can teach somebody to tell within a matter of hours, I can have them determining, uh, ferrous versus non-ferrous. And a lot hmm. of times when you delineating a site, that's all you need to know. You need yeah. to chase out the nail clouds and determine the non-ferrous inside those nail clouds. And I use two different color pin flags and, you know, so for, I would say 90% of the stuff that the archaeologists are doing, they can do themselves. It's only the big projects like the battlefields, the National Park Service stuff that, that uh, when you're dealing with hundreds of acres, that you need this other uh, entity to come in and,
4: and aid you. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, Webby has a good question regarding that point. Yeah, that's
1: that's a big one. Is um, and I think one that probably stops stops a lot of people from from really getting into this is it seems like when you look at metal detectors, um, I mean, I was looking at them for a project just not too long ago and you just get inundated with all the different features and variability and variations. What's What's if somebody's – I mean, can you, can you break down, like, the, the basics of, of metal detectors for us real quick? Like, what are some of the big things you have to, you have to look for? Like, um, like, let's bring cars back as an example. <laughs> you know, looking for a car, the first thing you want to know is, do I need a truck or do I need a car? Do I need a motorcycle, right? Well, it's the same thing with metal detectors. Do I need, you know, the Cadillac? Do I need the mid-grade one? Do I need the low-end one? And what does that even mean? You know, that's probably a question that'll take you four hours to answer, but let's let's try to do, do it quickly.
2: <laughs> well, with so many different metal detector companies out there, uh, it and they all do produce a high-quality detector. All the big-name guys out there produce something that will work for the archaeologist. And it really depends on what project you're looking at. If you're just going to take a machine out and... To delineate historic resources, you know, a mid-range detector, I would say, no less than six to seven hundred dollars mm-hmm. would be a starting point for archaeology. Okay. Uh, don't go to Harbor Freight; get the forty-nine ninety-nine uh, Harbor Freight special, because they just will not do what we need them to do. Right. You need you need good uh, uh, quality on your ability to cancel out outside noise, such as uh, Mineralization in the soils, or EMFs uh, around you, electromagnetic interference. You should well, you know, the ground balancing is very important because you change from one area to another. Uh, you have to rebalance your machine. So if you have manual ground balance, it's it's a great option to have, especially for the lower ones. The uh, higher machines have automatic ground balancing. On them a lot, uh, you set it and forget it, and it will automatically adjust. Now. Uh, when you step up past the general delineation, say you're going to go and do a military encampment or you know touch a small skirmish site or something like that, you need something that you can have in interchangeable coils. You can go, okay. either go from a you know small five inch coil from the normal eleven and a half inch coil, or if you're covering lots of ground, get a, a seventeen inch coil, wow. and that allows you to change and, and accept the different situations you're going to run into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I gotta tell you. Battlefields are notoriously hard to hunt because they're very sporadic, yeah. and a lot of times have been hit hard by the relic hunting community.
1: Oh sure, yeah.
2: So you have to, you have to stay ahead of their game, and a lot <laughs> of times they're buying out the best stuff. So uh, you can spend as little as six to seven hundred dollars for a quality machine, or if you want to go something that's going to punch down a meter and a half, you can spend.
1: Okay. Well, I'm wondering uh, just a quick question on the size of the coil because that got got me thinking. Um, You said if you're surveying a large area, go up to like the 17-inch coil, you know, uh, possibly. Now, in that case, would you use that just for finding hits and then you'd flag those and then you'd come back with a smaller coil? To, to really um, dig into what you're finding, so to speak, or could you do it all with that one size in that particular type well, of service? Well, a lot
2: of times when we're, when we're doing battlefields, and this is the great thing about it, you'll have a detector team go through, and they're flagging hits. Mm-hmm. And like I said, either uh, two different color flags, one for Ferris, one for non-ferrous. Uh, um, I use orange for, for iron okay. and then, because uh, it reminds me of rust, and then blue <laughs> for non paris So if you travel behind me, you know that uh, the targets that you're going to be looking at are, you know, it can very be predictive on what what material you're going to be looking for. So there'd be a detector's group going forward and marking the original hits and then a recovery team coming in afterwards. The recovery team will also include somebody that has the ability to record GPS and mm-hmm. photo the artifact. Um, a lot of the projects I've been working on have been with Duck and Doug Scott, where we we uh, noticed that this this team approach has uh, sped things up in the field. An inch right you know it cuts down a lot of man hours
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah and in fact one of the very first uh, crm projects i worked on was with you patrick we were uh, in kentucky working on a civil war battlefield in cynthiana and that was if i remember right that was kind of the approach that we had done i was following you with a bundle of orange pin flags and uh you know you, uh, there were a couple moments where uh, i got a little bit too close to the metal detector and, and you were like hey back off <laughs> the, the pin flags are throwing me off <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, I was following you yeah. along, putting the pin flags down, and uh, it was pretty cool to see the uh, you know the results of that, where we were able to see the emplacements up on a, a strategic hillside. Um, but I think that that's a good point to talk about. Like, what are some of the main contributions to archaeology overall um, that metal detectors have had?
2: You know, there is a small contingency um, in the northeast. And you might recognize the uh, name as Dan Sibulich. He created the Sibulich formula that we use for weighing uh, deformed musket balls to, to determine uh, original uh, caliber size. Oh, wow. He started the Bravo company up there, and they've worked on a lot of private lands uh, looking for lost revolution, Revolutionary War battlefields. And they usually work with small historic uh, groups, or now they, they attach themselves with archaeologists, and they oversee, they do the the field work and the archeologists help them record everything. And they're to the point now which they're, you know, they're a standalone group with a lot of of funds coming in to help them to go out and search for these other battlefields. What a great group of people. Uh, I don't think any of them actually go out and metal detect for, you know, just for the heck of it anymore. Uh, You know, to them, it's a mission. I love it. Mm-hmm. There's another gentleman and you guys might want to look him up too. His name is Scott Clark. He's oh, out of Kentucky. We're
1: we're doing probably the next podcast with him. I'm I'm in contact with Scott.
2: <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott is phenomenal. He is you know, he's been Metal Tech since he was a young man and mm-hmm he's gotten the archaeology bug and he actually is a little more ethical than I would say, uh, 99%. He, he, he is beyond. Um, yeah, he, he is just an amazing, uh, ethical, uh, researcher. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, I would actually put him in the realm of archaeologist himself, you know,
3: nice.
2: but, uh, lacking the credentials but uh he does a great thing and he he does a uh, online uh blog about his uh, uh his adventures mm-hmm. and his research nice he's helped out a lot
1: well that's great yeah we're gonna have scott on a future episode for sure um real quick before you go on let's uh let's go to break real quick and we'll come back and and uh continue this discussion on the other side of this uh short message all right Nomad is an outdoor tech company focused on one thing, owning fewer things, being resourceful, and working together. I've got a couple of Nomad products, the Modern Build leather strap for Apple Watch and the Carabiner for iPhone. The Apple Watch strap is well built and very affordable when compared to similar products online. I've had the Carabiner for over a year now and I love it. Holds my keys and turns into an emergency lightning cable for my iPhone or iPad whenever I need it. Check out Nomad's other products at www.hellonomad.com and use the discount code APN for 20% off your order. That's www.hellonomad.com. Fulfill your minimal mission, own less and live more with Nomad. Okay, we're back. And uh, this being the Archaeotech podcast, um, I want to <laughs> focus on that and and ask uh, just a couple more questions for people that, that might want to, um, you know, might be thinking about a metal detecting project, you know, for archaeology or, or um, you know, just want to understand a little bit more about when it's appropriate uh, to do that, or maybe more likely when it's not. Are there any sort of um, weather conditions or anything like that that make it challenging to metal detect in, um, or can you do it in uh, in any condition? Obviously, flooding would be bad, but, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, but anything else? I mean, is there any sort of atmospheric conditions or anything like that that you really need to watch out for?
2: Well, uh, you remember that you're looking for something that's very conductive, metal is mm-hmm. conductive. So it's, it's best to, to metal detect when this soil is moist, but not overly uh, saturated. Okay. For instance, I was working up in Maryland and there's a lot of, there, it, it rained heavily and mm-hmm. it got underneath a power line. Well, power line and square cut nails <laughs> in height and in saturated soils gave me false signals. They made mm-hmm. the nails sound like a, you know, a musket ball or a large aluminum can. Oh wow. Uh, so, you know, um, that that can be very not not the best mm-hmm. uh, environment to work in. Now most machines nowadays, especially the ones that are coming out these days, are either weatherproof or waterproof. Okay. The one machine that I, I use consistently for a lot of my field work now is submersible to ten feet. Mm, wow. So I can work in the in the rain with no issues. It's only my comfort level that uh, limits my uh, capability. Now, not all things can do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. But I guess uh, yeah. submersible, the, the fact that it is even submersible, obviously brings up other questions. And this might sound stupid, but can you metal detect underwater?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. There are several companies that specialize in underwater detectors. Yeah. Now, my lab does have its own uh, underwater detector. and It's one of, one of the few that's not uh, what I call this as pulse induction. And pulse induction, the issue with it is it picks up all metal, whereas a DLF or a very low-frequency machine, you can actually dial it back to discriminate against certain metals. Mm-hmm. So underwater machines have traditionally been uh, pulse induction. They pick up everything. So now, this introduction of this other machine uh, through my lab, you can dial it back, and you can select uh, material within a a heavy iron uh, concentration that you may be looking for. Okay. But yeah, well, underwater has, and it, you know, it's been around for years. Mm -hmm. The underwater crowd have used. Metal detectors in archaeology, probably more so than the terrestrial archaeologists. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the long run, I mean, you rarely run underwater an underwater project or program where you won't see an underwater metal detector in that program. Right now, you look at tra- tra- traditional uh, archaeology programs, and how many how many field schools have a detector in their hands? <laughs> yeah, unless you're in Georgia, then there's a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, we've uh, we've talked about field schools on a couple other podcasts too, and there's uh, there's actually lots of problems with field schools. So we'll just add metal detector to the list. <laughs> That's uh, you know. So one thing that we kind of I, I feel like feel like I let slip by a little bit in the first segment because you mentioned it. Now I know. I know you guys would rather somebody take a course and and actually learn what they 're supposed to be doing, but the reality is somebody is going to win some sort of project out there or they 're going to you know bid on some kind of project that that has a metal detecting component they 're not going to know what they 're doing and they 're just going to go out and buy one right so let 's assume that that 's going to happen and they 'd have no idea what they 're doing. Um, I think you mentioned buying something in the six to seven hundred dollar range is the is the price range uh, a pretty good, if you knew nothing else, a pretty good indicator of the type of metal detector and the, the quality of metal detector that you would need for basic archaeology without knowing anything about what
2: you're doing? The, um, I mean, it's a, it's a standard rule of thumb that for every $100 – uh, you spin on a metal detector, you gain an inch of ground. Oh, okay. Yeah, in depth. Mm-hmm. It's it's not true completely because uh, with my lab products, you know, it's thrown out the window because we're doing 28 different frequencies, which from high to low will give you greater depth depth capabilities. But mm-hmm. my, you know, throwing that out the window, you think about what uh, you know if you, you if you have a metal component to your project and you need a detector, my recommendation is to find a local detector dealer in in that area mm-hmm. and he will know the ground conditions situation you're going be working in, and he will guide you to the right product yeah and uh, you know that's probably the best way i you know very rarely do you go to an area unless you're you know somewhere in the middle of New Mexico where there isn't a uh, you know a company selling metal detectors. Right. So there should be somebody within the either in the region that should know uh, what you're dealing with. And a lot of resources I pull off actually come off, come online. And I, I get online and I research the area prior to going to figure out what 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 detection equipment I need to take with me. Mm-hmm. So that that a lot. You
1: mentioned depth real quick. What is the, in optimal conditions with the Cadillac of metal detectors, what is the maximum usable depth that you could, you could detect? I'm sure it depends on the soils and the geology, but in, in perfect conditions, how deep uh, can you really find stuff with a metal detector? Uh,
2: <laughs> well, in perfect conditions, uh, say Savannah, Georgia, mm-hmm. sand, I detected a 24-pound cannonball at 85 centimeters. Wow. That's deep.
1: That's deep. I ran all the other
2: <laughs> machines. I brought. I ran all the other machines over it. I. I did not hear a thing. Couldn't get a mm-hmm. signal. But, you know, the machine that I had just was hitting on it. So I That's... knew that I wasn't missing much. <laughs> so I had the depth capability of that thing, and it just happened to be that it was a backfilled trench. It was a, a Confederate trench that got backfilled after the Union took that location, and they just dumped the. Uh, uh, unexploded ordnance in, in, in the backfill and ended up at the bottom of the trench. So I was the only one that had the machine. That was that could do that capability to find it at that mm-hmm. depth. Now a normal detector will you'll you'll get a say a musket ball a 69 caliber musket ball anywhere from 25 to 30, 30 is pushing it centimeters. If you're not getting that depth capability on a, a musket ball, then I would revalue it with what detector you're using. <laughs> I actually, and a lot of CRM companies need to do this, especially if they're going to take on metal-detecting projects, to set up a uh, test guard with known locations of different items at different depths. And That's a good use idea. that is a training in and in a standard to get people up to speed. And not everybody's going to take the metal detector. Mm-hmm. So you'll actually recognize the the talent that you have on hand Utilize them as your mm-hmm. main detectorists. Maybe the other people follow up as they'll do the recovery. Okay. But a, a grid garden goes a long ways in uh, evaluating which detectors work in what conditions as
1: well. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a great idea, and and that leads me to another question too. I I remember, my grandfather actually used to um, build a whole bunch of stuff out of Popular Mechanics. Um, magazine back when I was a kid. And he'd give it all to us. And because he just liked to build things. And I mean, he built a speedboat for Christ's sake one time, I learned to water ski on a speedboat that he built from plans from Popular Mechanics. But um, one of the things that he did build was a metal detector. And I remember not knowing much about it and and using that in our backyard and finding stuff and having a good time with it and one of the things that he taught me way back then and I want to see if this is still a good technique just in case somebody were to to jump into this with no training was to you know you you first get a hit and then you dig it up and you pull the soil out and then you you know you scan the you scan the hole again and if that hits if that hits gone and it's in your pile then you just start dividing it in half and then checking the halves is that is that roughly how you would uh, investigate a, a hit with a metal detector, or is there, are there better ways to do that? Because yeah, that's, that's, that's what that, I remember from my childhood.
2: <laughs> that, yeah. That is a standard, standard practice. Um, one of the things that we try to, to teach with the AMDA is actually uh, reduce the amount of impact you're going to have mm-hmm. on that object. So um, we used to all carry our spades dragging behind us, you know, because we were used to shovel testing in the southeast, and uh, digging these big old plugs, turn the soil over and dividing our our plugs. And now since there's a thing called the pin pointer, which is a handheld little detection unit, which actually helps with the recovery, there's depth gauges on your metal detector that will give you a general idea how deep that item is. But before I dig anything, I move my coil aside and I try to identify it with the pinpointer so I can reduce the amount of damage that I do to the site.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: that helps a lot, but, you know, uh, but, you know, if the pinpointer is not hitting it, you, 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 uh, re-identify with location of it, then, you know, dig your plug and, you know, and, and, uh, proceed, uh, proceed with caution. But okay. the pinpointer is a, is a tool that, Everybody that's detecting should have, and it, you know, and they're they're quite affordable. Um, mm-hmm. you, can, you can find decent uh, pinpointers for under hundred dollars.
1: Okay. Do those have the same? Uh I mean, those those are smaller, so they probably don't have the same capability. so they probably only work on certain types of certain types of objects um, or materials and to certain depths, right? I would assume?
2: Well, a lot of them are programmable. Say, if you are in a house site and there's a lot of nails in the hole, but you're not looking for nails, you can pick up a nail and put it to the top of the pin pointer, turn it on, and it cancels out that. That nail, mm-hmm. so you can put it back in the hole and try to find the object you're actually looking for. Okay. So they're very general, very, uh, uh, and they only get an inch and a half to two inch of depth. I mean, they're not meant to be the end all director, you know, de- you know, detector. I mean, it's just uh, there to help you uh, find and locate the object you're looking for.
1: Okay. Well, um, we've only got a few minutes left, so um, we've talked about uh, <laughs> what the what the person with zero training would do. Um, now, if they wanted to do this right, you mentioned um, in the pre show, and you've already mentioned once the advanced metal detecting for the archaeologist course. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Like, for example, how long it is, what you're going to learn, you know, some costs associated with it, and how somebody's going to sign up for it. I'll remind you of all those questions. So start start wherever you want. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Um, the AMTA, the advanced metal detecting for the archaeologist course, uh, mm-hmm. started in 2011 and was very successful, which prompted, uh, Chris S and shade myself to apply, to put it under the uh, RPA mm-hmm. and we were the first team education course under the RPA. And to this day, I still think we we're one of the most successful. We've had over 250 students come through the class. Wow. Uh, some like it so much they've taken it five times. <laughs> nice. Um, uh, what you will learn in the class. The first day is an eight hour classroom, which we will break it down by military sites, non-military sites, budgeting, staffing, and various state regulations. And then we'll have our local sponsor give a presentation about the site that we'll be working on. Mm -hmm. The following two days, because it's a three-day course, will be hands-on with the equipment in the field in, in a practical archaeological setting. So not only do we get to go and train folks and people get to learn how to use this equipment. They're actually adding to the understanding of the site. Uh, this last year we worked at um, several uh, little sites. One in Buffalo, Wyoming on uh, Crazy Woman Creek uh, skirmish uh, site, which actually was eight small skirmishes and, and within six miles. <laughs> we found a lot of stuff uh, that you know, was very helpful to the archaeologists, narrowed mm-hmm. down what they're looking for in the future. And um and we also got to work at Fort Necessity, uh, the one fort where George Washington was uh had uh surrendered to the French. Nice. And from then on, this year we're looking at least two or three different uh uh locations. I know one of them they're talking about, and one in the southwest, probably in August, that mm-hmm. has a little bit to do with about Spanish mission sites and uh, early occupation of Spanish on these pueblos, which will actually help the archaeologists, because so many archaeologists who work on these large contact or post-contact mission sites or Pueblo sites don't understand that there's a whole bunch of material that they're, they're missing. They're concentrating on excavating the earlier parts of the Pueblos or in different phases of the Pueblos. But, you know, copper workshops or metal smithing shops like that associated with the Spanish missions are, you know, have been highly, you know, ignored over those years.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: I think they have a, they don't have the schedule up yet, but keep an eye out on the AMDA website for the events, coming up events. I think one on the East Coast is going to be in Saratoga a Revolution War battlefield. Right. That's going to be a very good one to get on and get a feel for what a battlefield uh, actually is and and how sparse it can be or how rich it could be. Mm-hmm. They can go either way.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Patrick. We've got links for a lot of the stuff that we talked about in the show notes for this podcast, uh, including the AMDA website and a few other things we didn't talk about that we might think um would just be helpful for our listeners to to check out so definitely check those out thanks a lot patrick and and hopefully we can send some people over to uh over to that website and get some good formal training and what's the what's the next conference that uh mind lab's going to be at Are you guys going to be at saa uh
2: no we didn't get in early enough for the saa this year they turned MindLab lab down last few years oh uh, because they were an arc- a metal tech company, but we've been in talks with them, and it looks like we may be able to get in for the 2018 conference. Okay. So uh, keep an eye out for us. We're going to try to hit more conferences, and don't be bashful. If you see the uh, my lab table, come in, talk to me. Mm-hmm. And I relish hearing <laughs> people's opinions, good or bad, and uh, give me a chance to, uh, you know, convince you that you know, metal detecting is a good thing for archaeology.
1: Outstanding. Nice. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Patrick. This has been a great show, and uh, maybe we can bring you on again sometime to, to get into the weeds on some other stuff.
2: That sounds great. I'm looking forward to it, and
0: thank you. 8-Bit Test Pit is here to put Arceo Gaming on the map, hosted by key players of the Arceo Gaming world. 8-bit test pit sets to explain the weird and wonderful connections between the study of our past and the virtual worlds we like to explore. 8-bit test pit breaks the field of archaeogaming down into three accessible formats. The main campaign, is the monthly show featuring a panel discussion led by Andrew Reinhardt, Megan Dennis, and Tara Copplestone on a number of issues and topics, all of which revolve around the intersection of archaeology and gaming. Everything from coding practices to ethics in and about the game reality. Dug Up Content is bite-sized 15-minute episodes released every six weeks, Filled to the brim with information covering key terms and concepts in and about the field of Archeogaming. These will inform and educate in the time it takes to load your saved game. Archeo Deathmatch. Two Archeogamers enter. One Archeogamer leaves. When a field is new, disagreements are going to happen. Here in the virtual arena, two archaeologists debate a topic related to Archeogaming. Posted every five weeks. Or is needed. Archaeogaming covers not only the study of archaeology and video games, but also the study of games as material culture. Some of our hosts you already may know Andrew Reinhardt, who was featured in the documentary Atari Game Over, Tara Copplestone, who studies how games are made through an archaeological lens, and Megan Dennis. A PhD candidate at the University of York who is studying ethics in video games. Plus, many more interested and insightful players in the archaeogaming world are ready to load. The show is hosted and produced by Sarah Head of Archaeofantasy Spain and Tristan Boyle, content creator of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: All right, we are back for our App of the Day segment for episode 47. And we're going to talk about a couple of different apps, um, very different apps, actually, from each other. Um, I'm actually not going to talk about one specific application, but a more of a, uh, I guess, a series of applications or a type of application. And this is for iPhone, but I know I know that they have them for other phones as well, other platforms, Android, things like that. But if you go to the various app stores and you type in metal detecting, you will actually find metal detecting applications. Now... Um, This is; These are along the same line of applications that use the physical attributes of your phone, not just the software, but the hardware inside to to use them for another purpose. My first experience with something actually doing this kind of thing for an iPhone was actually in grad school uh, back in 2010. And I actually haven't tried it since the screens got way better, but they had a scale application. There were a bunch of those out there where you just like set something on the screen and it weighs it, but they sucked. They were all really bad. If it was a kind of a lightweight thing i was trying to weigh pot shirts when i was doing my my uh my thesis and it just wasn't working out um it just didn't work it might be more sensitive now so that being said um i was looking up a couple months ago because i actually won this metal detecting project and i was like you know what i bet there's an app for that so i went out and looked and sure enough there's hundreds of apps that say metal detecting and the, the, other, the other thing you can type that finds basically the exact same thing is stud finders. So a stud finder, in case you didn't know, is not Tinder. It's, uh, um, you know, finding the studs in a wall. And usually the way a stud finder works is it's finding... I guess it's finding the metal in the wall. They're not really – like a real stud finder might actually be using a little bit of radar. I'm not actually sure how those works um, to determine if there's an empty space behind the drywall or if there's an actual stud behind the drywall like a 2 by 4 But the way the metal detecting apps for phones works is they use your – they use the hardware inside your phone, um, the accelerometers and all kinds of different things, to actually create an electric field and then – the way metal detectors basically work is it creates an electric field and something gets in the way of that electric field. You know, something gets in the way of that invisible electrical field and interrupts the signal, and that's when it detects something, right? So you tune a, a metal detector to to find things of certain sizes, certain compositions, so it knows how to filter out those things that it's detecting that you don't want to hear. Um, now, you can't really – you can adjust the sensitivity on most of these um, – uh, most of these metal detecting applications, but I mean, realistically, uh, you're not going to find much. I mean, I've tried it, tried it in the house. I mean, it, it will peek out on things that are obviously, you know, metal, and it'll vibrate and make all kinds of noises and do all kinds of things. But real world, real use applications, um, you if you lose like a if you lose like a ring in the sand at the beach or something, then download yourself a metal detecting app real quick, and you might be able to find it. But um, I, don't, I don't think. I don't think they're good for much else and and obviously don't use them for (laughs) archaeology. Don't use Chris and I were joking on the break about uh you know, attaching one of these to the end of a broom handle and going out and doing a project. Um, I don't think it, I don't think it would work, even if it's like an iPad Pro and you've got this huge surface. I mean, the theory is relatively sound, but you know, your depth is going to be crap, and uh, you know, the yeah. things you're probably going to run into a metal detect metal object rather than detect one. You know, it's going to be sitting on the surface. You're going to hit it with your iPad. So, <laughs> so anyway, I don't have a specific application. I did download one that's just called Metal Detector. Um, it was free. Do not pay for one of these if you want to. If you want to just have fun with it, because most of them are probably scams. But I know somebody would probably look this up and and probably try it and give it a shot. It's fun, but like I said, don't pay for them, and uh, have fun with it. But don't uh, don't use it for real real things. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, have you used any? Have you tried to download anything for any smartphone you've had in the past that was more like a physical use of the device, like like the scale or metal detector or stud finder or anything like that? And have you ever tried anything like that?
4: Um. No uh well, yes, i i did I downloaded an app that was I was just goofing around with it. Uh, it's supposed to be like a a heart rate and and health app that is mm-hmm. it's like supposedly it it measures some kind of thing through your thumb. I don't know. I'm clearly not a doctor, but um <laughs> it, I just it gave me such wildly inaccurate reading. It's kind of like those little metal. Uh, things that are on the handles of like cycling machines or ellipticals or treadmills it's it's like it can give you some kind of beats per minute for your heart rate that is just wildly inaccurate so i i don't know i was just goofing off with that but that was years ago so who knows if that technology (laughs) has improved since the iphone 3gs or whatever it was that i was using it on right yeah indeed well if anybody else has
1: uh experience with apps like this i'd love to hear about it in the comments and see what your um see what your results were and and see how that goes obviously too if you've got other stuff like i've got a i've got a small metal piece from LifeProof on the back of my phone i'm sure that's affecting it you know i mean i don't <laughs> even know where the sensor is on this thing but that's got to have an impact on it so yeah you know
4: anyway um so that's my app chris what do you got i have an app that and Chris and I talked about this during the break and uh, whether or not I should actually use it. It's, it's called bycott instead of boycott, it's Bicot. It's, it's, you know, you get the pun, <laughs> but it's an app that is a QR code and barcode scanner that lets you scan any product with a barcode or QR code on it, which is especially useful in stores but what it does is it maps the it maps various things so it can map a corporate family tree and it can also map uh, the various impacts or social or ecological um, Problems associated with various products. So when you download this app, it gives you a nice handy little tutorial. And then the the home screen on this thing lets you go through and it explains various causes. Like there's one to, you know, boycott companies that discriminate against um, LGBTQ mm. people. Uh, you can support Planned Parenthood. You can support the bees. Uh, you can boycott our president's various companies. You can, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, But two of the things that um, drew my attention, and I had seen it in the news, were you can boycott Coke Industries products, and you can also uh, boycott Monsanto products. And (laughs) if you've done any sort of research, it doesn't really take much into either of those companies. You've seen more more than likely that they have so many subsidiary companies that just spread far and wide mm-hmm. that you know sometimes it's really difficult to make that choice. And so the reason why I'm talking about this on Archaeotech though is, you know, we've heard through various individuals and in readings and stuff, I'm sure you've you've heard in your classes, but archaeology is an inherently activist science. You know, we're we're individuals doing things that affect you know, politics and culture and spatial planning and stuff like that. But then also us as individuals, like us as just private individuals, walking around, living, eating, breathing, and buying products, you know, we have to walk around with our anthropological training. And mm-hmm. so that means that we have we have the knowledge and we have the sort of, you know, theoretical toolkit to understand these complex issues that are going on in, you know, that uh, globalism is... A much deeper thing than the average consumer you know cares to think about and so this is this is an app that allows us to use our anthropological toolkit through our purchasing power and i think it was michael Pollan, who he's the author of the omnivores dilemma i think he's the one who said vote with your fork i might be wrong in attributing that to him but um you know the tagline for this app is vote with your dollar and i think that's exactly right is you know your individual actions as a consumer no matter who you are have really far reaching impacts and so if you choose to cut off the stream of capital to you know different companies that you do not support ideologically then you know this is an app that lets you do that more effectively do they say in the app where they get their information like so
1: we know that you know, they're not being. You know, they don't have a bias in in one way or another. Like, how do you, how do you know the that what they're saying is right? Basically, is there any sort of backup on that?
4: Uh, you know, I haven't I haven't been able to find out where exactly they get their their information. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only information on like the back end that I Found out while I was looking this up is um, that it was made by a former Microsoft programmer and congressional candidate. Oh. It was uh, Darcy Burner was mm-hmm. the the person's name. And so there's this quote in Forbes, which was the the first place I read about this. Burner figured the average supermarket shopper had no idea that buying brawny paper towels, Angel Soft toilet paper, or Dixie cups meant contributing cash to Coke Industries through its subsidiary Georgia Pacific. <laughs> Similarly, purchasing a pair of yoga pants containing Lycra or Stainmaster carpet meant indirectly handing the Cokes your money. Coke Industries bought Invista, one of the world's largest fiber and textiles companies, in 2004 from DuPont. So uh, I don't know. That's about as as deep into it as I've been able to find out, like where they get their programming. But I think it's a pretty cool thing, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to have this kind of knowledge and this kind of toolkit on the fly. Because you know, I've I've taken some classes in grad school and even in undergrad, you know, regarding community food security and nutritional anthropology that made going to the grocery store a very like stressful and kind of nerve-wracking thing where i was like oh geez if i buy this bar of chocolate am i gonna support child slavery in the global south you know and that's a very real problem that um this app can help you deal with you know Mm -hmm. there's a there's a little thing but as you go through the home page it'll ask you to go through all of these different causes and so once you've mapped your causes and there's a slider bar on, on, you know, how important a different cause is to you. So if, you know, if, if the labeling of GMO is only kind of important to you, you can slide the, the intensity bar down to moderate, Mm -hmm. but if avoiding Monsanto is incredibly important to you, then you can slide it all the way up to important. And so Mm -hmm. it'll map all of your causes and it'll say this product conflicts with you know, child slavery, Monsanto, water use, stuff like that. So that way you're not, you know, fumbling through all of of the stuff that you should be researching <laughs> on your consumer choices. Yeah. Well, that sounds interesting. I, Like I said, my only concern,
1: and I'd encourage people to do their own research and use this as a starting point, is, uh, you know, don't. Often, if somebody's not going to provide references, don't maybe take their word for it, but do use it as a starting point, um, because my, my biggest question would be, what if a programmer for this application, or you know, working at this company now, had a, had a bad experience at a Starbucks or something, and then goes and tweaks all the algorithms to say, oh, Starbucks <laughs> is bad, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. You, you got to wonder about that, you know what I mean? Because um, there is bias in everything that we do. We know that as anthropologists, so... You have to understand that going in, and my guess is just from the things that you were saying, you know, this is probably geared more towards liberals. I mean, can I can I go in there and say, oh, I don't want to see public schools, only charter schools, and you know, uh, I only want to I only yeah. want to patronize places that have a fish logo in the window, you know, stuff like that. Um, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, take that with a
4: you know as you will. Yeah. But, um well, But I, even I like when I idea. was just like playing with the app and setting it up uh i saw that there's there's a cause where people can be pro gmo so i don't know what the criteria <laughs> is for for getting a cause in there but mm-hmm. you know i don't know who in their right mind would be pro gmo but i mean that's all i know. eat
1: really is is gmo stuff <laughs> so i mean i don't know what to it tell you. glowing three-eyed fish i mean more eyes the better that's what i say so yeah. you know i mean if i can get if i can get a pig with more bacon on it is that a bad thing <laughs>
4: <laughs> or like the uh what is it the Super Bowl turkey that has like six or eight uh drumsticks on it <laughs> right what's the problem I don't see the issue <laughs> uh,
1: you know I want yeah. to I want to be able to sit on a cob of corn and eat it at the same time like I just oh wanna, my god you know that's uh have, we're we're gonna end the show with that visual I wish I was uh could sketch that out anyway um so <laughs>
4: All right. Well, that's great. Is that a a free app, I assume? Yep. It's a free app available on the the Apple App Store and also in the Android ecosystem.
1: Okay, sweet. Well, we'll have links to that um, on the show notes. And we won't necessarily have a link to metal detector apps on the show notes, but we'll have a link to the search results for metal detector apps so you can find your own thing because there's a ton of copies and knockoffs out there. So, all right. Well, I think that's it. Thanks, Chris. Yep. See you next time. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag Archeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims.